You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. I will be the, uh, I suppose, the question master, the ringmaster for this evening's event. You're all very welcome to Trinity and in particular to the Edmund Burke Theatre in Trinity and it's particularly appropriate that we're holding our public evening session of this centenary Connor Cruz O'Brien Symposium here in the Edmund Burke Theatre. Uh, we were delighted to have the Higgins at this morning's event. I think he enjoyed it so much he plans on coming back tomorrow and I think that's a tribute to uh, the amount of work that has gone into the organisation of this conference and could I just give my own special thanks to the three brilliant organisers. Alexander Carney who is a grandson of the great man uh, uh, also, Dr. Kieran O'Neill, my colleague in the Department of History, and I think a special mention also to the organisational genius that is Bridget Harrigan. Yay! So tonight's format is that we are going to have a keynote speech uh, by Frank Callan, followed by a panel discussion uh, that will include uh, Rory Quinn, Mark McCallaghan, and David Bromwich. And we'll be also opening it to the floor. So like today, it will be a very interactive discussion on the life and legacy of Conor Cruz O'Brien. But we will begin uh, with uh, an introduction by our Chancellor, Dr. Mary Robinson. And it's particularly appropriate that our Chancellor is going to introduce the public session because I went back to read some of Connor's journalism and I found this article from the 10th of November 1990. It was his first column after the presidential election and he began his weekly column in the Irish Independence by saying, the election of Mary Robinson, dash, how sweet it is to be able to write those five words, <laughs> is a turning point in the history of our country. And he was absolutely right, both politically and socially, Ireland was never quite the same again. And he ended his column by saying, all in all, this has been the best week in Irish politics that I can remember. Long live President Robinson. Two years later, uh, President Robinson came back to Trinity to launch uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien's book on Burke, the great melody, in-house one, the Provost House, and, and gave a great speech about how Conor was really uh, the only person who could bring uh, so much of himself and so much of, of, of his own insights into uh, the life of Burke. So I think Conor Cruz O'Brien would be delighted and honoured by the fact that the Chancellor of the University and our former President has agreed to open tonight's event. So will you please welcome Dr Mary Robinson. I've been encouraged to speak personally of my recollection of Connor as 
personal memories will enrich the more academic analysis. Well, we had our differences, but I always admired the sheer intellectual ability of Connor and his willingness to be unpopular on points of principle which were important to him. These, those points of principle veered from left to right, but it was clear that Connor held them with personal integrity. As it happens, Connor was elected to the Dáil as Labour candidate in June 1969, and I was elected to the Shannon as an independent candidate that August by the Dublin University constituency. I was also at the time Reed Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law, and I was concerned about the curtailment of civil liberties here in the Republic as a consequence of addressing the threat of IRA and other violence in Northern Ireland. I gave a public lecture on the Special Criminal Court in 1974, criticising the fact that the state of emergency which allowed for this non-jury court was becoming a permanent feature and being normalised. The speech was published in a booklet and later that year I was invited to participate in a meeting in the Mansion House organised by Hibernia, that was I think in November of 1974. As a human rights lawyer, I have always condemned IRA violence and indeed loyalist violence, but my presence on that panel enraged Connor, who accused me of, and I quote, dancing to the tune of the IRA. And I do recall that those were difficult times for those of us who spoke, spoke out about the danger of eroding civil liberties in this part of the country. Um, because of the impact, because of um, the uh, way in which uh, we both wanted to contain it and not really own it, uh, it was a very difficult situation. Despite our differences, Connor happened to be one of the reasons that I joined the Labour Party. I'd been re-elected twice to the Senate as an independent member, but was feeling the need to deepen my own political commitment. And in 1976, I decided that the Labour Party was the only party that I really felt I could join and hopefully contribute to. It was, after all, the party not only of Connor, but of Justin Keating, John Horgan, David Thornley, Noel Brown, Michael D. Higgins, Frank Klusky, Rory Quinn, who's here this evening, among others. I failed to win a Dáil seat in the 1977 election, but was re-elected to the Senate by the Dublin constituency, Dublin University constituency, this time as a Labour candidate. By coincidence, Connor, who had failed to get re-elected to the Dáil, was also elected to the Senate by the Dublin University constituency. So we were sharing the same constituency <laughs> at that time. Uh, Connor was a strong personality and influence, especially at Labour Party meetings. But I noticed, um, observed, I might put it this way, that he was not really able to hold his drink. And he became easily intoxicated which led to some very funny moments, which I'm not going to reveal here. They are part of my treasured memories. <laughs> Another venue where I have a strong recollection of Connor was at the annual meeting of the British Irish Association. <laughs> These took place in various colleges in either Oxford or Cambridge and drew political leaders and intellectuals from both parts of Ireland and from Britain. Connor could be relied upon to speak forcefully and increasingly champion the Unionist cause, which of course provoked controversy at the meeting and then back in Ireland when reported on. 
I never really fell out at a personal level with Connor, but I was glad when we became friendlier on my election as President of Ireland. It was clear that Connor held the office in very high regard, and he liked the way that I had opened it up. It also undoubtedly helped that my husband Nick had written a book about Edinburgh Burke to caricature, published by Yale University Press, which Connor was delighted with and praised publicly and quite widely. My last meeting with Connor was here in Trinity, shortly before he died. He and Moira were guests of one of the honorary graduates at the commencements that I was presiding over as chancellor, and we had a very warm chat at the reception afterwards. Connor had had a recent operation, and he was wearing a colorful headband that made him look a little bit like a pirate, and I think he quite relished that. Despite looking quite frail, he was an excellent spirit, and of course I've always had a great liking and great admiration for Moira as a wonderful poet and a wonderful person, and it was a pleasure to see them both here in Trinity. <coughs> Connor is a controversial figure who evokes strong passions on the question of his place in and his approach to Irish history. One of his redeeming features is that he could write well in a self-deprecating style. I want to quote from a passage in his memoir, which I like very much, where he describes a meeting with Professor Theo Moody, who was a much-loved figure here in Trinity. They were sitting on a bench in College Park just after Connor's history results had come out, and I want to quote from the passage. Then, still on that park bench, he gave me the most wonderful crash course in historical methodology. Ironically, as it seems to me now, one of his principal messages was to be particularly distrustful of memoirs. <laughs> memoirs were written in the main for purposes of self-justification before posterity. The historian should use them, but with the greatest <coughs> caution. It, it, would be, it, it should always be preferable to them, if available, papers written with an immediate practical purpose in view, to the eyes of a limited number of associates and without any thought of posterity. I accept the modest historiographical place assigned to memoirs, and I accept also that self-justification enters into these. Mindful of the moody mornings, however, I have tried to look as critically as is humanly possible at my own motivations and actions. In short, I try not to inhale. <laughs> so it seems to me that Connor's life is eminently worthy of a symposium, and I'm very happy to open this special evening of commemoration and if I may, to excuse myself, I actually flew in from Florida, arriving here in Dublin Airport at 10 o'clock this morning. I did have an hour's sleep, but it wasn't enough, so I wouldn't be able to follow the excellent uh, discussions. So if I may, I will uh, leave you to uh, what I hope will be a really good discussion, and I'm sure a controversial one, because that's fun. <laughs> barristers and historians who <coughs> put books on the Parnell split and on Tim Healy 
Uh, he also wrote the Royal Irish Academy's uh, Dictionary of Irish Biography entry on Conor Cruz O'Brien. And I remember back in December 2008, when Conor died, he appeared with me on the radio on Talking History on News Talk to talk about uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien's life and legacy. So he will deliver the keynote address this evening, and then we will open it up to our panel discussion. So please welcome Frank Hallman. by discussing his identity as a historian. In his essay, Michel A. Today, written in 1959 and republished six years later, he wrote, the root of Michel A.'s greatness was that he felt passionately about history, specifically about the French Revolution, and the kind of honesty which distinguishes him from many modern historians is that he said clearly and openly what he felt, the tendency of the scientific historian perhaps less a tendency than a convention imposed by academic public opinion, is towards impassivity. Some Buster Keatons of historiography can attain genuine and total impassivity. They record the facts and nothing more. Yet what facts? And why record them? How select the facts if you care nothing about them, one way or another? In States of Ireland, he wrote, this book is not a history, but an inquiry in the form of a discursive essay. He turns this somewhat mischievously into a graceful justification for the high autobiographical strain of the book, and wrote, the historian may claim, though we may be skeptical of that claim, that the scientific rigor of his work and the accepted standards by which it will be judged dispense him from any need to identify his own point of view or the factors which may have conditioned it. The writer of an essay like the present contains so much commentary and interpretation in proportion to fact, can claim no such dispensation. Cruz O'Brien is generally seen as having expended his life primarily in confronting his political adversaries, principally ardent partisans of Irish nationalism. But there is a second contest at the academic level concerning the relation of the writing of history to society. He had a deep aversion to a conception of the professional role of the historian that took the writing of history outside the realm of public discourse. He made an early call on this in choosing not to stand on his role as a historian. He decided that he would not win a contest with modern scientific historians and in effect professed that it did not bother him greatly whether he was regarded as a historian or not. He was here cutting his losses rather than choosing to engage in a controversy of a secondary order. He was trained as a historian in a school of fierce if narrow rigor at this university. He was a historian by disposition and continued to write works of history, besides much else. He was abidingly receptive to new historical research and encouraging to younger historians. The question of whether or not Cruz O'Brien is to be characterized as a historian has a curious contemporary sequel in Ireland. Irish historians eager to promote the idea of revisionism as a phenomenon of scholarly purity, have fairly recently chosen to ally to Cruz O'Brien, the prem premier contemporary intellectual revisionist. Thus, for example, he does not feature in Garoldo Tuli's chapter on the historiography of the Irish Revolution in the excellent recently published Atlas of the Irish Revolution. No doubt Irish historians who take this view would say, well, their concern is only with the purely academic. But where else do they propose to situate Cruz O'Brien? He would not have been offended, but he wouldn't have found it 
unsurprising and entertaining, if in a slightly grim way. The question of Cruz O'Brien's status as a historian is bound up with his insistence that academics and intellectuals have civic and political responsibilities. This strangely was deemed illiberal and excited sullen resistance, not only from Irish historians. Isaiah Berlin more or less invented in the Anglosphere the making of the historian of ideas. Cruz O'Brien admired Berlin, but on the spectrum that extends from the historian of ideas, he remained closer to the opposite end, that of the historian too poor. It is difficult now to appreciate how eruptive Cruz O'Brien's revisionism was in the 1970s in Ireland. Intellectual zones of reticence and evasion established since the establishment of the Irish state were rudely invaded. Slumbering pieties were affronted. The difficulty in reconceptualizing this is in part because revisionism has been incorporated into the regular mainstream of democratic nationalism. Revisionism has to that extent vanished into its own success. It is part of a broader phenomenon from which it tends to be severed, the liberalization of Irish politics and society, the stepped modernization of the Irish state. <clears throat> the sustained and largely effective renunciation of political violence and of ambivalence about it in the 70s and 80s was brought about by a formidable rallying of democratic nationalist politicians in the Irish state and across the island. But I think it can be fairly claimed that Cruz O'Brien provided the intellectual cutting edge. The attack on the premises of IRA violence and in the condemnation and equivocation that it attracted from some quarters of nationalist society had to be an assault of great intellectual clarity and of measured passion that caught the drama of the situation. What Cruz O'Brien grasped was that the politics of the Irish state and the history of Irish nationalism warranted and required an intervention at that high level, in consciously situating the revisionist debate in the line of the great controversies in Ireland since the fall of Parnell, symbolized by the insistent presence of Yeats in all that he wrote and said, there was a gesture of respect and fealty towards the political traditions of modern Ireland. This is something that has only begun to become discernible at this distance in time. His span is conveyed in a remarkable sentence in States of Ireland, which I quote. The Parnell split, Connor wrote, occurred 27 years before I was born, and it must have been about 40 years in the past before I became involved in it. <laughs> it was important that Cruz O'Brien should have been a member of Dáil Éireann 1969-77 and a member of the Irish government 73-77. Absent Cruz O'Brien, I doubt that political revisionism would have engendered a great and impassioned public controversy about the nature of nationalism, a debate about Irish history itself woven into Irish nationalist politics. It was in this that he had his greatest public impact. It was his finest hour. Cruz O'Brien's concern with Northern Ireland was, for a southern politician, atypical in more ways than one. He felt intellectually impelled to run with the Northern Ireland issue. He stayed with it for the rest of his life. While his passionate concern with Northern Ireland was in large measure driven by his personal determination to thwart and defeat the IRA in Sinn Féin, there was more to it than that. He had a sense of affinity with the Protestant population of Northern Ireland, 
whom he believed that Athenian controversially had borne the brunt of the troubles and were politically friendless. These considerations led him to adopt a series of increasingly controversial positions, from the reintroduction of internment to the redrawing of the border, and on to opposition to the peace process and the Belfast Agreement, to membership of Robert McCarthy's UK Unionist Party. It was the last move that dismayed, I think, most of Connor's friends who tended to be liberal nationalists. It was difficult to look at the photograph of the Irish Times party of Robert McCarthy wrapping a party tie around Connor without a sinking heart. Some of my own reservations were to do with the fact that I could not quite see, because I couldn't quite see how Connor could be pro-unionist, but not how he could become the unionist. He, he would doubtless say that that was on my part a tribal reflex. It was more to do with the fact that I always thought of Bruce O'Brien as a liberal nationalist of peculiar intellectual fearlessness. That is how I continue to think of him. I advance this by way of a general characterization rather than by reference to the fact that in his 1998 memoir, Cruz O'Brien's mistrust of British government policy led him conditionally to advocate the inclusion of Northern Ireland in the United Ireland on terms which would secure the vital interest of the Protestant community. It is instructive to track back from his opposition to the peace process to Cruz O'Brien's early revisionism and his deployment as Minister for Posts and Telegraphs of Section 31 of the Broadcasting Act against paramilitary organizations, which I still believe was absolutely necessary. Both materially increased the pressure on the IRA to desist from its campaign of terrorist violence or incentivized it to do so and to engage politically. This reminds us of the need not to lose sight of the complex integrity of the phase of politics and policy that began in 1969 and is not yet played out. We still don't know what the end point of the peace process will be or what the final assessment of the peace process will be, but it is difficult not to think that Cruz O'Brien's expressions of opposition were exorbitant and unconstrained by a full consideration of what the non-peace process options, which were themselves scarcely perfect, entailed. There's a further aspect to Cruz O'Brien's remorseless opposition to the Belfast Agreement. He had, as a realist thinker on interstate politics, an instinctive dislike of elaborately contrived, transnationally sponsored institutional arrangements of governance of the type that the Belfast Agreement brought into being. In much the same way, he was not sympathetic to the later transformations of the European economic community and quietly voted against the Maastricht and Nice treaties his affinity with the United Nations as a theatre of states endured. Cruz O'Brien is an avid reader of historical works bearing on nationalism, but remarkably less enthusiastic on the subject of academic theories of nationalism emanating from political science. His instinct was to deny that nationalism was a modern phenomenon, as Ernest Gellner persuasively asserted. At the same time, his emphasis on the development of nationalism as a doctrine in the late 18th century meant that he did not qualify as a so-called primordialist in the language of this academic dispute. In 1982, in his important essay, Ireland, Short of Nessus, he wrote, there is a real continuity in Irish nationalism, not an ideological continuity, but a continuity in the traditions and feelings of a people. In truth, he did not like divorcing these. In, in, in the late work Dogland, he distinguished two senses of nationalism. Nationalism as a doctrine 
or ideology and nationalism as a collective emotional force. He asserted that its power came from nationalism as a collective force. I don't think this really works, but, but neither does it particularly matter. Uh, he wrote in 1988 that the French Revolution accelerated the growth of nationalism, secularized it, and thereby helped to set it above other values. He attached great significance to the severing of nationalism from religious faith, or the prioritization of nationalism over religious faith. And to that extent, saw the Enlightenment, what he acknowledged might seem a paradox, and a rather repulsive paradox at that, to people in the West at the end of the 20th century, as contributing to the rise of modern nationalism. He used from Michelet's journal a quotation in an epigraph to the same essay. What Michelet wrote is, it is from you that I shall ask for help my noble country. You must take the place of the God who escapes us, le Dieu qui nous échappe, that you may fill within us the immeasurable abyss which extinct Christianity has left there. This Cruz O'Brien referred to as Michelet's desolation and his consolation. Perhaps here, confronted with Michelet's terrible prayer, there is a liberal agnostic Irish Catholic shudder, even before there was a Berkeley recoil. In a penetrating article, some months after Cruz O'Brien's death, Richard Burke suggests that in exposing the myths that encouraged insurrectionary violence in Ireland, quote, he mythologized the very militancy he opposed, unquote. His argument is that Cruz O'Brien developed a sequence of quasi-metaphorical explanations for terrorist violence, the pursuit of a cult of political violence, a primitive drive to blood vengeance, an adaptation of Albert Camus' image of the plague, or the sacralization of politics. None of these, Burke argues, capture the nature of modern militancy. And Burke advocated developing an understanding of how conflicting models of legitimacy breed antagonism in modern politics, instead of seeking the causes of conflict in superstitious beliefs and attachments. Richard Burke's argument prompts the question of whether Cruz O'Brien was in fact engaged in the same exercise as, say, a political scientist analyzing the causes that predisposed particular individuals or groups to violent militancy, and points in the direction of the answer that he was not, or he was at least only in part, concerned with that. Cruz O'Brien's argument was in a proper sense rhetorical, addressed to civil society to increase the public consciousness of the threat posed by political violence in the pursuit of fanatical ends. It was not primarily directed to those engaging in such violence. He insistently held that in Ireland the recourse to political violence could be minimized by the clear and unyielding resistance of governments and of civil society. Cruz O'Brien's work is a sustained meditation on what it is that defines and binds together a society and a state. That is discovered in opposition to political violence and extreme ideologies. Cruz O'Brien's writing is, as his conversation was, ethically performative, affirming what it is culturally and politically that unites us. His thought was inspirited by a profound sense of the European literary and intellectual heritage. That heritage was not merely what defined us. It afforded a bulwark and an arsenal 
against the internal or external threats that continue to confront us, however apparently novel they may seem. That heritage retained a fundamental political salience which was not to be traded for the arid specialisms of social scientists or the abstractions of theorists. He believed the connection between literature and politics had an actuality in both directions. If one was to hazard a political characterization of Cruz O'Brien, it was as a liberal born out of the anti-revolutionary strain of the Enlightenment and out of Irish historical experience. What tempers any ascription of generic political orientation to him is not merely the mercurial aspect of his persona, but rather the fact that he never ceased to be a historian. What is still more difficult is to characterize the trajectory of his politics across his lifetime. In international politics, he began identifiably on the left, but the fact that he was never a Marxist and a certain skepticism, always in some degree, set him apart. He was and remained ineradicably anti-racist. This did not mean he did not identify more with some nations than others. His early politics were marked by anti-colonialism and was prepared, he was prepared to countenance the resort to violence and liberation struggles. He did not, however, take refuge in the apologetics that were characteristic of the mid-20th century fellow traveler. As vice-chancellor of the University of Ghana, 62 to 5, he resisted Nkrumah's phased assault on academic freedom. Across his career, he became more skeptical of the left, but his shift to the right was not a violent lurch of the neoconservative kind. From the mid-80s, by which time he was in his 70s, his view of international affairs grew progressively bleaker. Here is, I think, undeniably a discontinuity. It began with the idea that many benignly intended but ill-conceived political interventions from the left or centre-left served to aggravate rather than to ameliorate what they were intended to redress. That aperçu petrified into a rigidity that approximated to a prejudice. It found expression in his sub-apocalyptic on the eve of the millennium published in 1994, which prompted a memorably ferocious review by Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens' rebuke was really directed to bad writing in late age by one of the sparse high practitioners of the essayistic art. In the preface to The Suspecting Glance, published in 1973, Cruz O'Brien wrote of his experience of the students whom he taught as Albert Schweitzer Professor of Humanities in New York University, 1965 to 69, which gave him his title. I was disconcerted precisely by the lack of suspicion in those bright young eyes. They did suspect, of course, and rightly, the President of the United States, the Board of General Motors, J. Edgar Hunter, and the trustees of the university. But they did not suspect their own slogans or sages. They suspected one another too little. They suspected their individual selves not at all. That was the worst of it. In the same vein, Herod asks for forgiveness at the end of King Herod explains, I am asking you, in the name of the little Herods, shut up in your own bosoms, only awaiting a suitable opportunity of self-expression. I am asking you in the name of a terrible thing, our common humanity. I am asking you because in all of you there is something 
which would like to do what I have done and be what I have been. I am asking your forgiveness, forgiveness for Herod the Great, the King of the Jews. That skeptical vision, not altogether remote from a Catholic sense of sin, is a distinctive feature of Cruz O'Brien's liberalism. What might seem pitilessly bleak is but the refusal of delusion. His life was devoted to the arraignment of political illusion in its racist or extreme nationalist, sectarian, and ideological revolutionary guises. The intersection of these zones of illusion was something he thought about a great deal. Bruce O'Brien had a charisma and a considerable, slightly loose glamour. His prose and his spoken utterance in public or private conversation were alike extraordinary. It was Mr. Jourdain in Le Bourgeois Gentil who exclaimed, Good heavens, for more than 40 years I've been speaking prose without knowing. <laughs> Few of us do speak prose, presumably Molière's point, but Connor did. His speech was perfectly constructed, and its rhythm and cadences carried over unbroken into his writing. No one who has been in his company for 10 minutes was likely to forget the experience. He was extremely funny in a constantly shifting register. He was a very good mimic. That mimic and a marvelous, wide-eyed, mock pathos often supplied comedic flourish to his superb verbal parodies. And then he emitted his high-pitched laugh, often sustained with polite insistence to the point where it modulated from hilarity into a kind of sustained carillion of reason. I remember years ago on the bench outside the Hummel, Summit Inn in Hoth, Connor discussing the nay temerary decree on Petrine and Pauline dispensations. I had somehow imagined temerary was a verb, but I was disabused of this. Less rationally, Connor told me, a Catholic should marry a Protestant. Less rationally. And then there began the laugh. If Voltaire ever went beyond the thin smile of his corporate to actual laughter, one imagines it might have sounded a bit like Connor. He was an inspired declaimer of the writings of others in prose and verse, as we will hear, and read much aloud to his children. In the back of his state car, he read Watership Down to Patrick and Margaret. His garden driver missed the final installment and was reduced to inquiry later through clenched teeth. What happened to the rabbit? <laughs> Of Connor, 
I would have to start again from the 31st of October 1961 when Maura joined him in Elizabethville. He was loyal, he endured adversity with grace, he retained the bohemian indifference to money, he was a resilient but peculiarly unyielding ethical construct. In the diversity of his political and intellectual engagements, it is easy to lose sight of the unity of his sensibility. Cruz O'Brien defies conventional characterization. This owes something to the multiplicity of his capacities and roles and to the controversies of which he was part, but is mainly to do with the angle for which he wrote. It is that angle which defines him. He was a writer and a public man. He was by academic qualification a historian and practiced that craft. He was an intellectual who believed in the legitimacy, that the legitimacy of the role required a reflexive skepticism commensurate to that applied to the subject under scrutiny. The critical sense of self was part of the thing itself, not a narcissistic interposition. He was not a contrarian, a self-designation popularized by Christopher Hitchens, one which to him would have seemed frivolous. Derided by his enemies, who could not bear what he said, but also felt the need to discredit him, as an elitist and authoritarian, he was always prepared to argue his case and remain accessible. Through the depths of the crisis of the 1970s and after, his number and address remained in the telephone book. Those who used the number were not confined to his friends. He changed the Irish narrative, not least in how the Irish wrote of themselves. Crucially, he actualized a high literary continuity in Ireland. He kept Yeats and even Burke in contemporary Irish discourse. Joyce, with whom O'Brien had much in common, but never much warmed to, wrote magnificently in Trieste in 1907 of the Irish as a people which, poor in everything else, is rich in political ideas. We do not have a history of intellectuals in Ireland in the remorseless French manner, but if and when we do, it will pivot on Cruz O'Brien. He was a patriotic Irishman, a European and an Atlanticist, and a friend to the Jewish people. Rudely ejected from the Dáil in 1977, Cruz O'Brien remained steeped in Irish politics. At the heart of the arcana of Irish politics, as many people here will know, is the system of proportional representation. Alexis Fitzgerald, his solicitor and an elder of the Fine Gael party, was a good friend of Connors, and from time to time they dined and drank together. On one such occasion, Connor informed Alexis that he had had an idea that was part philosophical, part political, part theological. <coughs> this opening gambit was formulated with some cunning to whet Alexis's interest. He then imparted the idea. When we die, we are not eliminated. Our surplus is distributed. <laughs> that is all I have to say. But one thing we want to do, which is, <clears throat> 20 years ago, I carried out some interviews with Connor in the course of which he read some of the poetry of William Butler Yeats. The first piece he read was the second part of Blood on the Moon, which Yeats wrote in 1927 and was included in the winding stair of Robert Holmes in 1929. The 
second piece, uh, second poem, uh, uh, is in a different register. They haven't been shown before. And now I have to read two poems by W.B. Yeats. Um, the first is from a poem called Blood on the Moon, uh, which was written in what you might call Yeats's middle period in the mid 1930s. And this, uh, I'm just going to read the second section of the poem. I'm reading it in part because uh, of the <coughs> mention of work in it without getting all my main interests. And another beacon. Alexandria was a beacon tower, and Babylon's an image of the moving heavens, a long look of the sun's journey and the moon's. And Shelley had his towers, thoughts crowned powers, he called them once. I declare this tower is my symbol. I declare this winding, guiding, inspiring treadmill of a stair is my ancestral stair. The goldsmith and the dean, Barclay and Burke, <coughs> Swift, beating on his breast in city line, frenzy blind, because the heart in his blood-sodden breast had dragged him down into mankind. Goldsmith deliberately city the honey pot is mine. And haughty-eyed Burke, the cruel the state of tree, that this unconquerable labyrinth of the birds a century after a century to mathematical equality. And God-appointed Barclay approved all things a dream that this pragmatical, preposterous figure of earth in its shadow of its own solid scene must vanish on the instant the mind of changes the Sidelined in Hassel and the laborer's heart, the strength that gives our loving state magnanimity of its own desire. Everything that is not found consumed. Proud man was a 
One that immediately comes to mind, having grown up, is the middle. Sorry, the one that immediately comes to mind, having grown up in a very disputatious house with a provisional IRA father and a grandmother on my mother's side who had one of those little electric lamps of low voltage uh, with the picture of Parnell in it and not the Sacred Heart, which was what I was used to. And politics was divided and described along the Civil War divide. And I wasn't part of that and was trying to grow out of it or grow away from it. And my joining the Labour Party uh, at the age of 18 uh, was sacrilegious as far as both my parents were concerned. Uh, But when I saw someone of the calibre of Conor Cruz O'Brien pretty much doing the same thing a couple of years later... I knew I had made the right decision. Very good, David. Well, I'll give you two. Uh, this morning, it seemed to me half the people in the audience knew Conor Cruz O'Brien better than I did. Uh, I really, I met him twice. Uh, and we had sustained conversations both the time. The first was uh, when I became uh, director of the Whitney Humanities Center at Yale. The first thing I thought of doing was in, to invite him. Uh, to give a couple of talks, one based on his biography, Burke, The Great Melody, which I had just read in Proofs. Um, so we, uh, I think it was first walking out with him when I, after I met him to go get some coffee, and he said, just to make conversation, I guess, um, the book's been getting good reviews in Ireland, I'm not sure why. Um, I said, well, I don't think it's hard to see why. He said, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, <laughs> 
this is on the uh, subject, really, of, of um, his not inhaling and trying to be objective about himself. He was caught in a posture of momentary false modesty, and he immediately conceded everything and uh, understood, I think, that the compliment he paid to Ireland uh, in that biography, even more than his introduction to the reflections on the revolution in France, was considerable because he had made Ireland all important to Burke and vice versa. It is not an inevitable thing to do. Um, but he had done it effectively uh, with uh, both rhetorical force and uh, a persuasive influence by quotation. The second time I met him uh, was to visit uh, the uh, National Humanities Center uh, in Research Triangle, North Carolina. And he was, he was then uh, on a fellowship there. They'd given him a second year of just complimentary fellowship. The uh, director of that center, uh, Robert Connor, liked him so much. Um, and uh, uh, we heard a good deal this morning about uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien uh, and his skepticism of rationalists in politics, uh, although he's also uh, probably the commentator on Burke who did most to associate Burke with the Enlightenment, not with any uh, half-believable entity called the counter-Enlightenment. Um, I had given a talk uh, on uh, reflections on the revolution in France relating it to Shakespeare, specifically to King Lear, and Burke's other anti-revolutionary writings coming out of something to do with the myth, the, the mythos, the story of the, of the breakup of a society, the, break, the breakdown of a state uh, that King Lear is partly concerned with. Um, it encouraged me greatly to hear from him that he liked the lecture. He was in the audience, and I was walking away from it with Connor and Moira. Uh, and he began to take me to task for this or that detail. I can't remember what it was, but she said, Connor, can't you see? He's just performed for an hour and a half. He might be tired. Uh, and he said, I'm trying to reason with him. <laughs> As I heard from Frank uh, uh, Callan's uh, uh, paper, a very typical utterance. Uh, and I think uh, a good emphasis to, to uh, bear in mind, he, not a rationalist, but believed in reasoning, if possible, with people, and wanted to seem, I think at all times, uh, reasonable. Very good. Margaret, um, I'm trying to switch this on. Uh, well, I think uh, I met Connor first uh, when I was 20. So I met him through my friendship with his wife, Maura's nephew, Morris Bigger. And uh, Morris, I think, brought me out to Whitewater to meet Connor and Maura. So I didn't meet him. Uh, I mean, I was second-year history, history of English student in UCD. Uh, he would have initially seemed like this towering figure. But I think it's very nice that Frank got the opportunity to show that film of him tonight because the point about Connor was contrary to the way he was represented publicly he was just very good with younger people he was very good at communicating with people and he just made you feel quite at home so what Frank said in his paper uh, about himself and Maura and the sense of family that they had together in which anybody who came in if they were congenial, felt included in. Um, so it's just a very memorable um, figure in my life when I was young. But I think the last time I saw him, 
was with Frank Callanan, who'd organised an event for the centenary of the death of Tom Kettle, wasn't it? At the Bank of Ireland. And uh, Connor was in excellent (coughs) humour and uh, spoke brilliantly. And he was... uh, He made you feel... That phrase of his that many people have repeated about that period of time before you actually live in the world, you know, the generation before or two generations before you. Talking to Connor, you did actually feel that he stretched back through somebody like Yeats to Parnell in his memory, and he brought you there with him. I think he's a very compelling, charismatic figure. Frank, when you would talk to Connor, would you ever argue with him about history or politics? Uh, no. No, was it? That's exactly, that's exactly right. And uh, I'm afraid I was uh, uh, appallingly... Sorry. Uh, I was appallingly submissive. And, uh, this is an opportunity to confess to that because I do remember going out to Hoth when um, uh, Connor's great friend Thomas Flanagan and his wife Jean, uh, uh, both uh, since very sadly... Uh, uh, are no longer with us, uh, but uh, Jean was a feisty New York liberal democrat, and uh, when Connor was uh, espousing the reintroduction uh, of internment, uh, 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 she uh, took him on with uh, uh, energy, uh, uh, which is something I I didn't do. Um, My uh, earliest memory of uh, Connor uh, was when uh, I was in my second year uh, in uh, UCD uh, at the LNH. Uh, Connor came out to uh, speak in a debate uh, that uh, the motion was that romantic Ireland is dead and gone, which of course is from Yeats's September 1913. And uh, Connor uh, very skillfully moved on to another stanza of the poem uh, was it for this the wild geese fled because that gave him a marvellous phonetic opening to discourse on what he called the average wild goose (laughs) (laughs) Very good, I was struck by something earlier today when we were discussing uh, what he was like going out canvassing for votes because uh, I was struck by what Martin had said there about how he was very good with young people. Well, earlier we learned about how he was also very good out, about, out canvassing and maybe that's an image of him or a perception of him that we wouldn't have. Rory Quinn, what was your experience of him out canvassing, out working with him as a politician? Uh, the first direct experience that I had was uh, in the 1973 SNAP election campaign in which we literally had less than three weeks from the time that Jack Lynch called the election to polling day. And it was a scramble compared to the sort of long lead-ins that we're used to now. And he came to Dublin Southeast, uh, where Noel Brown had chosen not to stand, and I was now running in his place at the age of 27. And while he was an elected TD, he was a senior figure uh, and was in much demand uh, around the country and yet he gave us a lot of time. We had a meeting in Donnybrook in the Scouts uh, Hall um, beside the, the River Lauder there, and he, we had a packed house. He, he answered 
a lot of questions, uh, but he kept on saying, but I'm not the candidate here, he's the candidate here. <laughs> and, you know, you're not voting for me, or if you want to vote for me, you vote for him here. And it was to the point, in your face, pure politics at the end of the day. And um, subsequently, in marked contrast to some of the things that were said earlier today, and perhaps to some people who have a different image of him here, he was a virtual rock star at Labour Party conferences. Uh, he was gregarious, he was engaging, he was full of energy, he was uh, not adverse to having more than one or two pints. Uh, he never seemed to go to bed, and he was always up and about the following morning. And uh, a lot of people who had this image of him, in part, I think, uh, fueled by a negative image that came from people who hated his agenda. I mean, he was... He dismantled the Christian Brothers version of Irish history that had indoctrinated three or four generations and wasn't terribly careful about taking down the edifice in his process. Uh, and a lot of people hated him for that. And he had this public image which Labour Party delegates who would only have seen him on television or read about him or heard Fianna Fallers and others given out about him were absolutely charmed by his engagement. Charmed is about the best word I can describe it, and they just were happy to be in his company. And uh, he distilled an awful lot of the, the myths that were around um, things when, when uh, he, he did that. And then he came to me when he was under pressure in the 77 general election uh, when I was uh, elected with John um, Horgan. And he sadly lost his seat in that game. But he was still generous at time that he should have been devoting to himself in, in out in Holtz in that constituency rather than my own. But that's, that's a strong image that I would convey to... There are people in this hall who know what I'm saying and who have a direct experience of it. But for those of you who have an image of Connor that was distorted in part by the antagonism that was thrown at him, uh, he was a, a rock star who really relished the whole... Uh, gregarious nature of a party conference. Very good. David, can we talk about Edmund Burke? Uh, in The Great Melody, he argued that there was that theme, the fight against injustice and oppression running throughout Burke's career. Do you think there was a Great Melody running throughout and a consistency running throughout Cruise O'Brien's career? I think for uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien asked for Burke uh, uh, to call attention to and uh, expose uh, the abuse of power um, for both of them a great, a great part of the, the, the commission they felt they took on in doing political work and writing about uh, politics. Um, it's also true, somebody said today, and perhaps more than one said today, that, that uh, O'Brien was concerned with society and the state, uh, how they work together. And I would say how the, the state is built up from society. It's not a sort of grid of rules imposed on it to shape it according to some right premise. Uh, that idea about society and the state, I think, uh, grows from his reading of Burke, and he... Um, you know, put it into polemical practice and, um, you know, as a, use it as a basis for observation the great many of his political writings of the late 60s, 70s, 80s, most subtly. Um, so I think that uh, that relation exists between them. It, it may be um, 
merges so much in his biography of Burke, which is a hero-worshipping biography, as he confesses, um, that the fact that two characters came to the same conclusion for somewhat different reasons uh, is obscured. But I think you know there is that there is that uh, uh, common purpose between them. And Burke's enemies became his enemies. Um, Burke's enemies, for instance, uh, you know the form of. Uh, fanatical utopian Protestantism that he associated with Jefferson. Uh, yes, they became O'Brien's enemies too. And, and I, I think, you know, that, um, let's say, self, self-conscious adoption of, of Burke's animus um, mars a little the objectivity of the latter part of the great melody where there really is an effect of trying to vindicate Burke at every turn at the cost of diminishing the size of Burke's antagonists. I mean, one of the interesting things about the uh, pamphlet wars of the 1790s, which sprang out of the publication of Reflections on the Revolution in France, is just how interesting the anti-Burke pamphleteers were, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, Thomas Paine, um, and and Joseph Priestley among them. I think uh, O'Brien underrates their thoughtfulness and their originality, but full justice is done to Burke. <laughs> and Frank, I wonder, did his, his writing on Burke influence his thinking on Northern Ireland in the 1990s? That Burke spent the last years of his life in the 1790s writing in apocalyptic language about the threat of France and the danger of predicting all these things that were going to go wrong or what happened. And, and Conor Cruz O'Brien's language became increasingly apocalyptic with these predictions of what would go wrong with the peace process? Yes, I suppose it doesn't... It half works, but I think his, um, uh, his uh, interest in Burke is kind of later developing than his uh, uh, interest in Northern Ireland. Uh, so there's a kind of sequencing uh, difficulty with that. Um, He's uh, interested in Burke earlier, isn't he, in the mid-60s? But then it's like he leaves him aside and goes That's back right. to him in a different way or something. Yes, that was his, because he said he couldn't, uh, he, he began to, he wrote the uh, uh, magnificent uh, introduction to the reflections on the revolution in France, I think for the Penguin edition in 1968. And that was an amazing piece of writing about Burke's sort of uh, uh, buried uh, Irish Jacobite rather than mm. Jacobin uh, sensibility. Uh, he then, I think, tried to write a biography of Burke, or a con- more conventional biography, and found it impossible uh, because uh, I think late 18th century's w- politics were, parliamentary politics in Britain were so uh, uh, intricate and not really of that much interest to Connor that he was kind of deterred by that, and it's then through Yeats, through the Yeats line, that he goes back to the idea of a thematic biography of Burke, uh, which is self-consciously not a full political history of Burke in the late 18th century, which had uh, defeated him or or never really interested him. It wasn't wasn't the point of Burke as Connor saw it. Margaret, the work on Yeats was something I think that influenced you as a, as a scholar. Yeats and then... Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's quite interesting that he wrote um, 
an essay on Yeats over 50 years ago. And if you give it to an undergraduate now, it's one of the... It, it just makes Yeats very accessible, or it ought to make Yeats very accessible to a younger generation. Now, I'm beginning to notice that when, when I read it first in the 70s, he wrote about people uh, like Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Uh, I mean, what, what he really opens that with a sense of Yeats as somebody who Hannah knew and Hannah did not much like. And so Yeats suddenly becomes situated uh, within the city you're living in and you've a kind of different way of apprehending him than in what seemed more conventional literary criticism of the time. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think his passion and cunning essay on Yeats is extremely important, really interesting. It's a brilliant read. But we were talking earlier today about how Connor apprehended the world. And we keep saying he's an historian, when he was an historian, but he also did study Irish and French. And his understanding of history and politics seemed to be very strongly through literary texts, which is not that usual for historians, or certainly not historians of modern Ireland, many of whom, well, with notable exceptions like Frank and Roy Foster, but most historians of 20th century Ireland see themselves as, you know, they might put a little poetic quote at the top of an essay, but that's about it. Do you know what I mean? They don't, literature is something that's over there. Whereas I think that, that particular essay uh, of Connors opened up a way of understanding the politics of Yeats himself, or the idea of Yeats as not merely a brilliant poet, but as somebody who actively lived politically within his own time, uh, was partisan, was engaged, and functioned as a political animal. And I think that's a really uh, transformative way to think about literary figures, and it's also transformative for how you can think about and write about history. So he, he, I mean, he's very. The other thing about Connor is, I suppose, he always tried to present this uh, very reasoned and logical way of being in the world. But actually, he was a profoundly emotional writer, and the the way in which he felt about literature seems to be. I mean, you can even see it from the way he read those poems. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that literature is a source of emotional range, depth for him. So yeah, I think for historians of modern Ireland, the way he linked literature and history was incredibly important. I mean, he loses that in some of his later works. You know, he, he kind of goes away from it, or he walks away from it, ex- except, I suppose, in the case of Burke, to some degree. What he's doing with Burke is different, I suppose, because he's a political writer as opposed to a creative writer. We have the most recent... Uh, Biographer of Burke in, in, in the audience, uh, Richard Burke. I don't know, Richard, do you have any, uh, do you have any anything to add on? Well, I, um, well, I wasn't expecting you to. Uh, <laughs> 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 
to uh, Burke. Uh, I'm talking about Burke and Overnight tomorrow, so I'm not going to say much, but just in relation to uh, a question that, that you asked, asked about, and consistency, uh, I thought it's worth um, thinking about that more generally, just to say about uh, what it means to be consistent or inconsistent in politics. It's something that's always asked about. Because it's always been something that's um, been uh, raised in relation to Edinburgh, the, the refusal to defend the American Revolution. Instead, of course, he never did defend the American Revolution. He, he originally is the person who shifted from the defense of the revolutionary position to the Korean Revolution, and therefore a betrayer of the principles of his views was But it's in this sort of um, this topos is the one that's usually used to frame uh, O'Brien as well. The, um, devotee of um, left liberal principle who then, anyway, that came up much today. But I wonder whether it's um, how coherent for ideas at all about uh, politicians. Uh, what it means to be exactly, you know, does it have any, well, it must have some meaning, but how useful is it to think about political careers in terms of consistency um, in a way that one might be mathematically consistent or philosophically just to say you might change your opinion, but that's not necessarily inconsistent. Circumstances might change. So my question really, and this seems to be whether to, to hopefully the politician and the other panelists have thought about political careers and the shifts within them. And uh, my, my own, as they were speaking, my own question was whether the phrase consistency is really an adequate way of framing a political trajectory um, which involves a development and circumstances change and it's developing which doesn't obey the rules of logic. So this is a useful way of anyway that's And that's exactly what Brick would have thought as well, that a, a, a false consistency throughout the I suppose you could say um, in part answer to that that in a way Conor Cruz O'Brien only has a career as a politician for one decade, and that's the 1970s. I mean, he's multiple other careers, you know, writer, a diplomat, a, but, but editor. It, it, editor, you know, whatever. But if we take it that that is his fertile year, decade as a politician and the decade in which he most influenced and shifted and changed probably more than anybody else, the whole weight of public opinion and public feeling in this state entity in relation to Northern Ireland. Well, it's already answering your question, but it's kind of saying that I think the politician, Connor, was the politician of the 70s. And perhaps one of the reasons why he got stuck on the peace process, and I think he did get stuck on it, not that I think anybody needs to run with it, but is because that decade had shaped him so profoundly that in relation to the North, and, and like his fertility was over, if you know what I mean. I don't know if that's any kind of an answer. Rory Quinn, staying on that decade as a politician, uh, there was a wonderful piece on Conor Bryan in the Irish Times today by Stephen Collins. And uh, in, in Frank's Dictionary of Irish Biography entry, there is a quote from uh, one of the three profiles that the Irish Times did on on Hawkey and then Conor Cruz O'Brien in the run-up to the 1969 election when they were running for the same constituency in Dublin. And uh, the, the Irish Times wondered uh, whether there was 
quote a whiff of Lucifer about both of them. Uh, I think the, the, the view changed very quickly. But, but on, on the subject of Holly, that became the great antagonism, not just of the 70s, but possibly even more so in the 80s. And he was the great, the great person who took him on in the press throughout the 80s. I, I think for both sides, if you like, for a modern, liberal, European, open-ended, tolerant Irish republic, which many of us wanted to see and have gone down the road of bringing some of it into existence, including Mary Robinson, who was here before. Connor was the kind of the ideological uh, representation of that, and Hawhey was the complete antithesis to that in every particular way. He was new money, he was mohair suit, he had uh, a lifestyle that was, as we subsequently found out, absolutely corrupt in the way in which it functioned. And the fact that the two of them found each other in the one constituency in real time, and it's not, you know, uh, Nevada or some vast place, uh, we all know it, uh, they, I think it symbolised, certainly for me and I think for a lot of people, it symbolised the clash in personal terms. And neither gentlemen were particularly shy about insulting each other. Uh, so that uh, it led for great copy as well. Very good. And what about his record as a minister? Because various there, historians debate that and how effective he was. Well, I think to measure it, you have to look at the context in which you become, or the person becomes a minister, and the cards that they're dealt, and what they do with them, and what discretionary powers they have, which they exercise. Um, We had a telephone system which, if you were to try to explain it to people today, who carry two or three mobile devices at any one time in their hands and are on them at anything, and where couples and families come into a restaurant and the first thing they do is not look at the menu, but take out their mobiles and continue to consult, food becomes secondary. To say to somebody, it's going to take three to four years um, to get a phone, uh, Mark Killalay famously um, was the Minister for State at the Department of uh, Posts and Telegraphs subsequent to 1977. And his successful ploy in getting re-elected was to drive a big Peugeot 606 car, ministerial car, around East Galway where he was the uh, reigning Fianna Fáil TD and he would arrive, knock on the door of a particular house, say, you were on to me about the telephone I have it in the car. And he literally would take a telephone device, the old one that you're familiar with, and physically hand it over to the absolutely delighted household and then say, well, now it's not connected yet, but there'll be a lad around soon to get it connected. And, and that story I have had verified. And there are many people I heard, I think somebody else earlier today, talking about writing to Conor Cruz O'Brien to try and get a phone with not much great success. What he did succeed in doing was persuading Richie Ryan to release, and this was after the oil crisis, don't forget. Uh, he persuaded Richie Ryan um, to actually release an enormous amount of money, the benefit of which would not be seen for at least four or five years. Uh, and in short-term politics... Uh, that was a very, very difficult amount of money to get, and yet he got it. Uh, I don't think Connor would have claimed at any stage to have been good with uh, either a 
complex electronic device of any kind. <laughs> but he, he certainly laid the foundations for what became a network of modern telephones. And we jumped from having a, you know, a medieval telephone system uh, close to just carrier pigeons uh, to something that was uh, state-of-the-art and had jumped about two levels of, of technological development. All he had to do was to get the money. The engineers had the capacity to make it happen. They just were thwarted in getting that money uh, from successive ministers. So in getting the money for the department, which was all they wanted him to do, and successive previous ministers or not, he was an ultimate success there. And I would think, whether you agreed with it or not, he used his powers and brought in the um, Section 31, if that's the right reference, uh, yeah. you know, stopping the IRA and subversives using the state television to subvert democracy. I agreed with them at the time. I subsequently felt it was time to uh, relax it, and I supported Michael D. in Cabinet when that was proposed by Michael D. subsequently, because we had moved on. But there is no doubt in my mind that the decision that he took when he was minister on Section 31 was the right decision, but he had the courage to fight it and to fight his corner and to implement it. Very good. Frank, speaking of Section 31, I wonder if we had held this symposium 10 years ago, the areas of controversy might have been Section 31 or the later writings on the peace process or maybe the writings on Israel. But are you surprised that in, 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 in more recent years, possibly the most controversial area goes back to the Congo and, and debates over that period? I suppose I am, yes. I, I did hey, look at the film the other night, which is disjointed. I mean, it, 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 he's there, but he's not, uh, it doesn't connect up. Um, uh, the, the Section 31 thing is, is interesting because it's probably now very difficult to uh, justify Section 31. Whereas it, I certainly believe it was the, the directive under Section 31, I certainly uh, uh, believed it was necessary, continue to believe it was necessary, but that's po possibly something that would be very difficult uh, to uh, persuade a contemporary Irish audience or any Well, other the technology has changed of. such. I mean, it's, it's redundant now. You use social media, it's, it's no longer relevant. It was, that was black and white land in many cases, so it's, it, it was a, a power that was available to the technological level at the time, which wouldn't resonate with anybody under the age of 25 today. Yes, yes. I mean, I remember thinking at the time when, because the Irish, I mean, I, I think the, I'm just trying to remember, it's quite complex, I think the, the ban, in fact, antedated Connor's tenure, but he did introduce a new, there was an amendment and there was a new directive, but it wasn't actually, I don't think it was It was correct. basically what, to preclude the uh, encouragement of any... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you are correct. He didn't actually introduce it. It, it was already it was already there. I think um, it's in the nineteen sixty one. Jerry Collins, Act, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and he it was, reinforced it and re he did. strengthened it. He did. But it's, it's, I think most people vaguely think he it's, he invented it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, oddly, I just thought it was very important in Ireland that people who are committing terrorist acts on behalf of the Irish people were not allowed to use Irish television to justify that. I actually, I thought the case for the British, the British followed the Irish ban, and the case for the British ban on IRA apologists was less compelling and also a bit inept because it, it was a, 
it involved voiceovers and so forth. It was kind of odd, but I always thought at the time there was a, the argument was less cogent in the case of the British band than the Irish band. There were particular reasons why people could not commit terrorist atrocities and justify it back on Irish television, which was a, also a very intimate medium. I mean, that's the other thing that's changed. It's a less intimate medium yeah. now than it was. Can I bring you in on his influence as a public intellectual and a public figure in the United States? Was that mainly through his involvement in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam war protests? Is that, is that a high point in America? I think it was. Um, that's when I began reading him around 1965, 66, and, I, and Conor Cruz O'Brien was celebrated as one of the anti-war uh, figures in, uh, this is, overlaps with the, his time as Schweitzer professor uh, in New York. And I, I think very, um, what to say, it nourished his thinking. That uh, I agree with uh, uh, Frank uh, Callanan about the uh, uh, strength of that long introduction to Reflections on the Revolution in France, published in, in uh, written in 1968. Well, he was, at, he was at NYU at the time, and I, I just reread the acknowledgments there. So, I mean, two of the colleagues he brought in to give guest lectures were E.P. Thompson and David Erdman, left-wing uh, intellectuals who were as conversant with literature as Conor Cruz O'Brien was. This was good, this dialogue, I think, and it um, led to that uh, tension uh, between admiration for Burke and sort of impartial scrutiny of Burke that, that characterizes that... Uh, long essay, strong piece of writing. And I, I think that, that tension um, was dissipated a little uh, in the longer book he wrote on Burke. But the, it, it goes with his uh, anti-imperialist uh, protest against the Vietnam War. And he's one of the strongest voices then. He, he got bruised by an Irish uh, cop in New York. And he says in a piece of writing, uh, Frank uh, quotes elsewhere, um, you know, no prizes for guessing the ethnicity of the cop. Um, I wanted to come back a little to address uh, Richard Burke's question about uh, uh, <coughs> consistency. Because um, it strikes me, I, uh, one ought to say, both uh, Burke and O'Brien uh, were supporters of parliamentary politics and representative government. The, the justification, uh, the theory, if you will, of representative government is something Burke wanted to do with more patience and detail than, than O'Brien did. But if, if you uh, do believe in the good of representative government, that a great deal depends on the, on the character of the representatives. And that's where consistency, I think, does come in. Um, the, he, uh, uh, there's a quotation uh, O'Brien makes uh, from the first uh, version, as it were, the very short draft of the reflections, a letter to Charles uh, um, Jean-Francois Dupont, the French young member of the French National Assembly, to whom the reflections is addressed as a letter. And he writes in, in this sentence, uh, never wholly separate in your mind the merits of any political question from the men who are concerned in it. And we do look for a consistency um, of, a, of a sort uh, in, the, in the people we trust. Uh, and, well, politics comes out of that too. Uh, of course, compromises of the essence of it and... Um, uh, judgments that have to be uh, made uh, on the spur of the moment sometimes 
may, may create inconsistency, and one shouldn't uh, you know, belabor too much the importance of finding a deep inner consistency or whatnot. But this matter of character, I think, um, both Burke and O'Brien uh, you know, felt, felt that very strongly, and, it's, and they were both superb at characterizing politicians. Um, the chapter on India in O'Brien's biography of Burke um, is, I think, made the, the strongest part of the book by its characterization of the triangular relationship between Burke, uh, Philip Francis, and Warren Hastings. And I, I, that's, that's a biographical gift. In a way, it's a novelist's gift, though he didn't write any novels that I know of. And they both had it, and it comes in handy uh, if you were doing political writing. Thank you.